0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Please subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Eva Iluz to the show today to talk about her new book, The End of Love, A Sociology of Negative Relations. Professor Eva Iluz holds the Rose Isaac Chair in Sociology at the Hebrew University and the School for Advanced Studies and the Social Sciences in Paris. She's also a Senior Research Fellow at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Eva Iluz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. I'm very happy to be here. Before we begin talking about your book, tell us a little bit about yourself. Was there a person or an event or idea that was particularly instrumental in your intellectual
0: development? Oh, well, there would be uh, quite a few of them. Uh, If you're talking about dead people, uh, then I would say probably Max Weber, this great German sociologist has had the greatest influence on my thinking since he was the one who thought uh, the most about the nature of modernity and what it meant to be moving toward a world that was becoming increasingly rational and impersonal in his perspective. Um, Interestingly enough, he thought that this would uh, lead to an increase, an accentuation of the erotic uh, bond what he called the erotic bond. Um, If you're talking about living people, then it would have to be a philosophy teacher I had in France in high school. And she was uh, extremely uh, important in making me understand uh, how um, the life of ideas uh, could uh, really influence you know, how we live and uh, how we how we think. Um, so, yeah, so these are, I would say, perhaps the two people who influenced me most.
1: Well, the uh, ideas you have in The End of Love are uh, very powerful and interesting. Um, the title is A Sociology of Negative Relations. What are negative relations?
0: Negative relations is a concept I have tried to um, eh, elaborate in order to account for the fact that so many relationships actually end, uh, sometimes quite quickly after they start and sometimes because they never even start. Um, So the word negative does not have the meaning we usually lend to it. It's not negative in the sense that it's, Simply not positive, not having you know a positive outlook. It's negative in the sense that it is indeterminate, that it is uncertain. That was one of the big meaning I gave to negative. Um, uh, negative um, in the same way that you know somebody is looking for someone who is not in a very busy room. That's Sartre example to explain uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of the properties of consciousness. You know, you're, you 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 miss a meeting, you go into a busy room, and that person is not there, and you're looking for that person. And so you're looking for an empty space, for an empty uh, entity. And then the second meaning is another meaning which I took also from the existentialist tradition only before Sartre. And it is the meaning of something that breaks down and to which we pay attention to. Heidegger has this famous example of a hammer and a nail. And you can nail your uh, with the hammer. You can do that ordinary operation. But uh, at some point, you know, maybe the hammer is going to break down. As soon as it breaks down, you pay attention to the hammer and or to the nail, whatever the reason is. And so negative means... Also, it's a kind of relationship we're constantly thinking about and observing because they're not quite properly working. So what really interested me in this book is applying the notion of uncertainty as a sociological notion to uh, the formation or the collapse or the end of um, sexual and romantic bonds. So that's why uh, I felt the need to make up this notion of a negative bond, to really account for this property of bonds that just don't stick together. Well, many variables,
1: many factors have been suggested as contributing to the unmaking of family and social bonds, for example, uh, women's economic self-sufficiency, uh, culture of hyper-individualism, the decline in the value of duty, national, family, religious, uh, and as well as others. But you approach it through the lens of capitalism. Tell us why.
0: All the uh, reasons you evoked are not... Uh Uh, are not untrue. They do play a significant factor. One of the main threads I have followed through in my research uh, since I started it uh, 30 years ago uh, was to posit that the um, development of consumer culture and capitalism had had an influence and even a significant influence on emotional life. So let me answer your question, first of all, on a broad level, and then I will try to tackle it on the more specific level that you uh, raised here. Um, You know, indirectly, we can say that capitalism very much fostered the uh, expansion of romantic love, for example, in enabling young people to uh, have a living and therefore to be less dependent on their parents' Uh, ...guidance and prohibition to choose their mate. So we can say that in this indirect way... ...capitalism actually fostered uh, romantic love. If you look at consumer culture... ...you also see that there was a a very uh, intense... ...I would say use of the image of the romantic couple... To promote goods. And since this is uh, true already since the beginning of the 20th century, the image of the romantic couple is going to really haunt and be at the center of consumer culture. So that's a, a second uh, element. Third element, we see also that romantic practices such as dating change under the impetus of consumer culture. Dating is actually a word that contains really two different types of meanings. It has their, let's say, emotional meaning or romantic or, you know, sexual meaning we want to attribute to it. And it also means that we're consuming something together most of the time. Dating means to go out on a date usually means to consume something together. So it designates really a change in romantic uh, practices and modes of uh, encounter. So what this book is doing is to argue that the sexual revolution, which for women was uh, a very important stage in their emancipation. That sexual revolution was completely hijacked by uh, consumer culture. It was also made possible by it, by the way. Uh, But it was also hijacked by many aspects of consumer culture who entirely sexualized uh, women's bodies and redefined the terms of the uh, homosexual or, or heterosexual encounter. It redefined it in the sense that it progressively emphasized the sexual component and the sexual aspect of relationships. And in doing that, what it did is it made it autonomous. I mean, that's a sociological word to say that what happened is that, you know, sexuality for its own became an, an, a, a goal for its own sex. For, for its own sake sorry mm-hmm. so you have the rise of a new form of encounter which are called casual sex which everybody calls casual sex it's the hookup it's the friends with benefits you know all these words come to express the fact that uh, people meet for something which they expect to be very short-lived and which has actually um, no expectation of future. That, in my uh, opinion, or as I try to show in the book, was very much shaped by consumer culture and in turn changed the terms of the encounter uh, because it affected uh, separation between emotions, between sexuality and between the matrimonial goal and that separation, actually, um, gave rise also to the uncertainty, to uncertainty, especially in the beginning stages of relationships. And what I, one of the things I try to show in the book is indeed that uh, uncertainty is um, a very unusual characteristic of relationships. We usually know the rules and codes of most of our relationships. Practically, the only relationships for which we have no codes and no rules are the ones um, that uh, today are, you know, what we call romantic or sexual relationships. There is a close connection between this rise of uncertainty and the fact that sexuality has been so uh, deeply Uh, and intensely promoted by consumer culture to refashion uh, what it means to have a valuable self and what it means to enter into a relationship.
1: A recent article in in The Atlantic, it's in an American online magazine, uh, had an article called uh, A Shift in American Family Values is Fueling Estrangement of Adult Children from Their Parents. And when I read that, although your book, of course, does focus on romantic relationships, I wondered whether that would fit into your sociological analysis as well. Well, I don't know what the article says. It's, it's about an increasing... Uh, incidents of uh, estrangement of adult children from their parents.
0: Oh, This is the book by Joshua Coleman, isn't Correct. it? Correct. Yes, yeah. it
1: was an okay. article by him.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, if you're asking if uh, this feeds into my analysis, um, well, Joshua Coleman is a psychologist, if, not, if I'm not wrong. Yes. But, um, you know, I think I would, I have tried to avoid terminology such as estrangement and alienation.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: because uh, these are two normative words. I'm trying really to try and understand what is happening, uh, not to the family as such. Uh, there is a lot of literature to the family. I'm trying to h- understand what happens to um Encounters uh, mostly, although I do have one chapter on divorce. Um, so um, I think I would I would say that uh, approaching another as if he was a stranger is different uh, from estrangement. Estrangement happens between people who ac- actually do know each other fairly intimately and are very familiar with each other. Whereas in my case, I would say it's almost the opposite that has interested me very much, which is the fact that there is a stranger whom you do not know, with whom you uh, uh, have sexual relationships quite often relatively quickly, and who then again becomes a stranger. Uh, who can most of the time who fades away from your life, so that strikes me as a different process than the one you are that Joshua Coleman is talking about of estrangement, Uh, because in his case it's really uh, uh when children you know and parents become actively strangers and it contains a lot of pain actually in it. Whereas the process of going to bed with a stranger is often accompanied with a great deal of pleasure, often with a sense of empowerment, um, and often is accompanied by the sense that there is no goal to this, you know, casual, uh, short-term relationship, whereas in the first case, it is um, accompanied with a sense of failure. Of, of something that has collapsed in the book.
1: Okay, that's, that explains a lot. Um, freedom generally is considered an absolute good. Uh, you write about negative freedom. What is that and what are the problems with it?
0: So, you know, uh, well, negative freedom is not my, uh, I didn't coin that expression, and even though it may be confusing, that the word negative freedom should seem to resonate with the notion of negative relationships. It's actually a bit different. So negative freedom, I think, was coined by Isaiah uh, Berlin. And it's the kind of freedom that is supposed to regulate our um, relationships in uh, under liberalism. Basically, it's the freedom to do whatever you want to do as long as you do not uh, infringe upon another's freedom. Um, In that sense, if you want, it's a thin uh, notion of freedom. Uh, it, It doesn't tell you positively what you should do. It simply allows you to be whatever you want as long as it's not interfering with anybody else Now, to this notion of negative freedom, we may oppose, say, two other notions. One is the notion of expressive freedom. I think it was coined by Güter Anders, a German philosopher. And expressive freedom is actually, um, it's not a positive one, even though the word um, is inviting. It's actually, for him, he wanted to say that there is increasingly in modern society a way of expressing yourself, a way of acting in a world that was increasingly narcissistic and uh, unmindful of others. Um, and that justified itself in the name of expressing yourself. And then there is a third notion, which was coined uh, and worked on by the German philosopher Axel Honneth, which he called social freedom. It's a freedom in which I I, I try to become, you know, an autonomous subject, but at the same time, I I try also to do it in dialogue with someone else, which requires a special kind of social skill and uh, a special kind of moral consciousness and moral development. So I think one of the issues that troubled me in this book was to ask the question of, you know, if I go back to the issue of sexual freedom, which I evoked earlier, sexual freedom was very important for women, but then that freedom enabled, I think, quite often, uh, Relation, um, sexual and romantic relationships, to become uh, the ground for people to do anything they want, and to um, to be a kind of site for self expression, for the kind of expressive, self assertive, self assertive freedom that Gunther Anders thought was actually destructive of relationships. Um, so for me. I, 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 I think that um, sexual and romantic relationships, we can see these three forms of freedom competing with each other. And um, one of my claims is that because we have been so preoccupied with, uh, in a way, both negative and self-assertive uh, freedom, we have not asked enough what we owe each other, in fact, and what should be the limits, um, um, what should be our moral and ethical limits in a relationship. I, I, I am illustrate this with a phenomenon of ghosting. Ghosting is um, increasingly common. Ghosting is when you're, have a relationship of whatever length with someone, and that person simply disappears without often giving an explanation or announcing their departure. It often traumatizes the people who are left. So a great deal of those experiences of heartbreak, of abandonment, of desertion, are dealt with and discussed in psychologist offices, And one of the things I'm trying to do is to say, as a sociologist, this is uh, quite quite widespread phenomenon. It is uh, something that many women have to uh, uh, experience. It's actually quite often women, although I'm aware that there are some men uh, as well. And uh, there are, and most often people are on their own. Uh You know, they go to the psychologist to uh, face and o- overcome and process the kind of pain that they may feel. This kind of pain is social. I want to say it is social. And it should be discussed again in, in ethical terms. I mean, we should take that pain seriously. Um. Heartbreak is actually, or being left, or divorce, is uh, one of the major reasons why people commit suicide. It's the reason why people fall into depression. Um, It is actually the source of collective uh, pain. So as such, in discussing different notions of freedom, I wanted to reopen the discussion of... um, what should be done to alleviate, or discuss more collectively about this form, um, of about the collapse of uh, freedom, which the French sociologist Emile Durkheim called anomie. Uh, anomia, uh, anomia was for Durkheim those social phenomena in which there were no more rules, and as a result of that, he observed. Uh, that um, there would be an increase of suicide. And uh, he connected the two of them. So I think romantic and sexual relationships have become the uh, site for an anomia, a lack of rules, and trying to understand the fine line between freedom, the kind of freedom we want to keep and anomia is one of the stakes of this book. This is the kind of conversation I would like to uh, generate.
1: And even on a much more superficial level, ghosting is a lack of basic consideration. Saying hello, saying goodbye, sort of the, the politeness and social norms people used to take for granted is uh, are eliminated in romantic relationships when there's ghosting. So,
0: um, well, um, sorry. Pl- no, go ahead. Sorry. Was this a question? No, it was just a comment, but please uh, say oh, no, what no, you I, think. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I wanted to say, wait, you know, I'm not, we should not forget that the uh, master ghoster was Don Juan of Mozart and uh, Moliere. Uh, um, so the... The, the ghoster is not, as such, a modern figure. Uh, but in contradistinction to Mozart to and to Moliere, to the, that character, I mean, ghosting women comes with a very, very heavy price. If you ghost women, and this is what Don Juan does, in fact, um, if you ghost women, you are contravening to moral order, to a moral and religious order. Uh, because he abandons them, he has sexual relationships with them, and this is viewed as, uh, you know, exploitation and contravening uh, the religious rules of the time. And he's and he has to die at the end. Um, so we have become a society of ghosters because there are no more penalties to be paid. And one of the things that struck me is how uh, um, how elaborate our sense of ethics can ha, has become on matters such as uh, eating vegan, making sure we buy products from uh, companies that produce their products in an ethical way, uh, making sure our coffee is uh, ethical. We, we have become ethically very developed in that respect. And yet, sometimes it's the same people who can uh, behave um, as if the, the person they had a relationship with and sex with, as if that person had, uh, uh, if you want, no personhood that we should uh, take into account when acting upon our simple desire to leave. Uh, so that strikes that was that's a paradox, if you want, of current morality that I think is worth thinking about and pondering.
1: That's a very good point. And one one thing it makes me think of is the examples you use you, where uh, we're ethically developed Uh, are all either inanimate objects or things that impact people very far away whom we don't know. (laughs) But what you write about is ethics toward people we are intimate with, and that, of course, is much more challenging. Uh, You you write that sociology either is or can be the study of crisis and uncertainty— Uh, Say something
0: more about that. Well, um, traditionally, I think sociology has studied sturdy things. Marriage, uh, capitalism, bureaucracy, um, even suicide. I mean, each one of these would refer to a big sociologist, you know, Marx or Weber or Durkheim um even divorce is a sturdy fact what i would call a sturdy fact it's a fact that is uh con- that is marked in the law um and it's very clearly defined um what i was trying to do in this book is to capture something that is that we have less concepts for which is Uh, the fact that when people enter relationships, they don't often don't know, first of all, in what frame they are. Frame is a word to designate the kind of relationships we're in. Very often, we don't know if we are in a relationship, if we are in a Uh, situationship, if we are in a casual relationship, we simply don't know. It's quite extraordinary that that would be the case, given that most of the time we always know in which kind of relationship we are. Then second, what interested me in uh, uncertainty was that uh, in contradistinction to traditional courtship, to the ways in which men and women, uh, so heterosexual relationships were defined by an, uh, I mean, encounters were defined by a very elaborate set of set of codes and, and rules that enabled men and women who had very scripted gender roles. Um, it enabled them to know what to do. Um, and to handle, I would say, the uncertainty that sometimes accompany the revelation of feelings. Courtship as such has completely disappeared from our culture, among other reasons, because um, sexual sex is supposed to uh, be at the beginning of a relationship. Um, and with that, it means also that Uh, these relationships are now plagued by the problem of figuring the rules and the right sequence of events. So, you know, a lot of the people I interviewed, because I interviewed people as as well as read popular culture for that, um, would tell you that they simply don't know what it means when a man or when a woman does that. And quite often I think it is women who are more um, uh, perplexed by men's behavior. When a man does that, I don't know what it means. So I was interested in that kind of hermeneutic perplexity that seems to plague the condition of many women and which also is at the heart of a very vast industry of self-help, of self-help books and uh, um, workshops to help women, men and women, but mostly women, to figure out what it means and what to do. If you remember, there was a highly, highly successful book, I think it was about 20 years ago, called He's Just Not That Into You. And it was a very successful book because. You know, the the book simply said, "Don't agonize." If he's, if you're asking yourself what it means or what he wants, it means he's just not that into you. And so it came as a, as a, a strike in the clear uh, blue sky, uh, because so much of self help culture aimed to help women to understand what the man was about. So. One of the threads also um, I explore in the book is um, showing that the state of uncertainty is actually a way to reproduce gender inequality. Because quite often it is women, more often than the men, women who are uh, left to struggle uh, with that uh, state of hermeneutic uncertainty and perplexity. So. Uh, In a way, sexual and romantic relationships are uh, a battleground, if you want, for the difference between the sexes, but not only their differences, also uh, for the uh, relations of domination and power between the sexes. And um, uncertainty is also one manifestation of that.
1: And uh, is that uncertainty related to uh, what you write? uh, And I I quote, thick normativity. Let's see, after the 1970s, um, the sexual revolution freed sex and romance from the so-called, quote, thick normativity by introducing a thin procedural one. Is that the source of the uncertainty you're talking about?
0: I'm not sure it's the source, but I would say it's connected. So what I mean by that is is that um, sick normativity means that sexuality was connected to uh, hot symbols and meanings. It was connected, for example, to sin, You know, the story of Adam and Eve is supposed to express uh, also something about um, them discovering the sinfulness of their nakedness. Um, I mean, certainly in in what is called Judeo-Christian culture, sex is replete with heavy moral meaning. That's what I call thick normativity. And it tells you uh, what's wrong and what's right. That's why also Don Juan is punished by God himself. I mean, you know, or, or uh, right. an expression of God himself. It's the commander, the statue of the commander, but it's really a divine punishment. So that just goes to show you how important sexuality is uh, uh, in this culture we have we have moved thanks to sexual revolution to the sexual revolution we have moved to a culture which uh, does not stigmatize or tries less to stigmatize sexuality especially that of women i mean women you know were defined by their sexual purity and uh, chastity and in some culture Still, for some women to lose their chastity and purity is uh, thought to be in a kind of irreparable uh, sin that you can uh, commit uh, and a stain on the whole family as well. So for me, at least, mercifully, we have moved away from that vision of uh, sexuality. We have moved to a vision in which consent now is going to play the main moral role. I would say that um, while in the past we put the onus of morality on uh, the sexual behavior on, on of women, and of men too, but less so, much less so, uh, today we define morality m- more in procedural terms in the sense that it has to follow some the, the the rules of consent, and it has to follow the rules of consent of two parties because we have come to uh, first understand that a great deal of male sexuality was predatory. It was violent, and it was based on uh, the uh, violation of women's body. Um. And also, we have come to view men and women as equally autonomous subjects, and we have come to view, therefore, sexuality as something that must be actively consented to. But it doesn't tell you what you should consent to. Uh, So consent in itself is a very thin moral form because um, it's as if you were supposed to, you know, resolve all the problems of domination as soon as you resolve the problem of consent. But actually, in my opinion, this is only a very small part of uh, the problem of domination in men and women's relationships. So you you can follow the rules of consent and yet uh, still be in a relationship uh, of domination. But this part of the relationship cannot be easily uh, contracted. Uh, You cannot really say very clearly uh, how to subscribe to, uh, how to write a full contract, a full emotional contract. So on the one hand, we tend to think more and more of our relationships as contracts, which are freely entered and freely exited. Um, But I think it's a wrong metaphor because quite often we really have no way of knowing what contract to write. That's why I think it's a very thin way of conceiving of relationships.
1: In in addition to the uh, contractual consent issue. You write extensively, Eva, and quite graphically, about the performative nature of modern sexual encounters. Uh, Why do you believe they add to the culture of uncertainty and confusion?
0: I'm sorry, Renee, I didn't hear you well.
1: The the performative nature of modern sexual encounters. Uh, You... you, um, write very clearly and very graphically about them. So tell us why you believe that that performative nature adds to the culture of uncertainty and confusion.
0: So first of all, I, I don't think it's uh, me writing graphically. These are the examples I use, uh, uh, which are some, of, some of which are graphic.
1: Well, right, the, the subjects described it graphically. Right. Right.
0: I think, you know, well, I don't want to sound um, nostalgic of an era in which things were clear. I just want to make that clear. Um, I, 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 I think we are, uh, our culture is changing an enormous amount of rules and norms um, which concern both gender relationships and sexuality, and this profound change has entailed also uh, uncertainty in the ordinary sense of not exactly not having figured out the uh, the ground rules for this change. Um, so, my book wants to help the discussion. In trying to figure out what these rules could be, and so, and um, this is simply a kind of uh, uh, caveat to before I respond to your question, I'm not nostalgic at all about the clarity which the past provided, because past relationships were marred with an unbearable for me, uh, with unbearable control and prohibitions. Um, uh, men's and women's uh, uh, bodies and uh, and sexuality. Now, uh, with regard to your question, in what sense does contemporary sexuality contribute to increased uncertainty, um, I think it has to do mostly with the phenomenon I mentioned before. Um, if in traditional societies you have three forms of interaction that are deeply intertwined sexual the emotional and the matrimonial and I'm t- using here uh, an ideal type um, if you take this then we have increasingly separated all three of them uh, and this and we have separated them, because, uh, sex, the the sexual, um, b- because sexuality has become the objects of politics, of equality, and emancipation. Sexuality has become uh, politicized, political, which it always was, but it became explicitly so. At the same time, that this uh, process happens, sexuality is intensively used by um, movies, Hollywood, advertising, fashion, cosmetics in a different sense, in in the sense that in order to promote all these um, consumer items, you want the body to be redefined, redefined as a sexual one. And so... um, this will contribute a great deal to, uh, for example, redefine, I think, uh, and interestingly so, women as mostly sexual um, objects. So you have this paradox of women, on the one hand, having more rights, having more equality on, on the one hand, and on the other hand becoming much more sexualized and therefore also uh, in a way um, kept in a situation where their difference from men is much more marked or is very marked or still very marked through their sexualized uh, body. So these things actually will make a, a great deal of relationships that are sexual, uh, uncertain in the sense that you don't know if they have any meaning that is other than sexual. Um, And um, women and men also often enter these relationships with different assumptions. Uh, The stereotype according to which men want sex and women want sex uh, are more ready for emotional relationships, is actually something I found to be astonishingly true. Quite often stereotypes are not true. This one is uh, much, I found much more true than I had anticipated or expected. Uh, so the approach of relationship that men uh, um, be, um, between men and women is different. Women will tend to approach relationships as uh, emotional things to care for. Men will tend to approach these relationships as occasions for sexual satisfaction. So, these in a way accentuate also the differences between men and women. Uh, These differences are played out in these encounters and increase uncertainty.
1: I'd like to get back for a moment to something you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the, our conversation and that was breakups and divorce with their very serious consequences, emotional, sometimes physical, life-threatening consequences. Um and and we know that it's very well documented that that is the case. And nevertheless, uh, a typical recent online article was entitled, uh, Afraid of Divorce, 15 Reasons Not to Be. Can you help us understand the disconnect between the real-life impact of divorce and breakups and the rather cavalier way popular culture deals with
0: it? Um, You know, when divorce was highly stigmatized, um, And it's no longer, I think. Um, uh, So one of the reasons why it's no longer stigmatized is for a good reason. Uh, People used to uh, remain married even though they were deeply unhappy. In some countries, European countries, until recently, divorce was uh, not allowed. So, having the possibility to leave um, is an important prerogative of our rights. In the same way that people fought for the right to marry someone of their choice in the nineteenth century, that was a struggle. I would say in the twentieth century, that's that was the struggle of the twentieth century was to the right to leave somebody we did not uh, want to live with, or could not live with. Think, for example, of a violent husband. Um, Having uh, said that, I would say that that uh, moral progress, that moral and legal progress, uh, hides the fact that uh, divorce will often be accompanied more, again, for women than for men with um, economic hardship, um, and uh, with the uh, um, tremendous difficulties that can be felt in having uh, one's self been rejected. So one of the things that's Characterize modernity very much is, um, that our sense of self-worth is very much tied to our intimate relationships, much more so, I believe, than in the traditional world in which one's self-worth was more given by your, you know, kin and your family status, uh, than by your intimate relationships. Intimate relationships have become a major source of self-worth. When relationships end, that sense of worth and even identity, it's more than worth, it's also its more deeply identity. It's uh, because uh, intimate relationships today define the entire spectrum of who you are. It is who you spend your leisure time with, it is who you have uh, sexual pleasure with, it is who you share your friends with. It, in a way, intimacy has become bound with the entire constitution of the self. So, um, divorce means uh, both a material, uh, often a material downgrading of your life and a uh, severe undermining of your identity and your sense of self-worth. That, I think, are the sociological reasons why divorce is a much more difficult experience than it is often presented. Now, if you ask me in the other part of your question, why is divorce presented often in popular culture as something you should desire, I think there is a great deal of glibness in self-help culture, uh, which offers programs, cons- uh, incessant programs of self-improvement, self-empowerment, uh, and views divorce as just one step in uh, that great project of remaking, constant remaking and re and re-empowering of the self. I think um, that's how I would um, uh, interpret the reason why there is such um, an abyss between the real experience of divorce and the ways in which it might be presented in popular culture. Uh,
1: finally, uh, your book, Diagnosis, if you don't mind that word, our uh, cultural pathology that may actually threaten the continued viability of the culture itself in which so many people choose not to have children. Uh, n- now that you've described the sickness, what are your thoughts about the cure?
0: Oh, you know, I'm not... Um As I said uh, before, I don't think very much in normative terms. Uh, I try not to think about cures because, in my opinion, um, this is not the task of the sociologist. No, that's true. The sociologist (laughs) is really to bring problems uh, at the threshold of civil society and have uh, people uh, discuss these cures. So one could say, I mean, I think conservatives would say uh, we need to uh, emphasize what is called family values. I don't think we can really go back to family values, uh, and I don't think it's also desirable, given that these family values quite often mean uh, that the woman um, is in charge of. Uh, running the domestic households, and that this comes at the price of her own, um, of the development of her own personhood. Um, so th- that's not an option. So I, I'm not sure I can tell you the cure. I I, th- I think I can tell you what I would not want. Uh, um, and, uh, another possibility uh, would be to kind of abandon the whole project of having a stable couplehood. And some people, you know, I mean, are doing this. Uh, some young people, a lot of young people are either living in polyamorous arrangements, or more and more, I want to say, more and more young people, or renouncing intimacy and uh, altogether, because they find it all too uh, complicated, that uh, these two arrangements aren't very convincing to me, um, because I do think that uh, intimate, stable relationships and the experience of uh, stubbornly loving someone through thick and thin is... Uh, deeply formative for the character of a person um, and is one of the ways in which we do learn um, to be more ethical human beings. So I don't think we should uh, abandon. What I think should be, I mean, one of the keys, not all of them, for me would be to insist that um, equality between the sexes um, is key to, uh, to intimacy. And I think all too often uh, heterosexual relations are plagued by um, problems which seem to be the result of psychology when in fact they are the result of sociology. And one of them, not all of them, but I think one of them is inequality. So, if I had to say what would be the core of, uh, or, <laughs> or the direction of the cure, I would, uh, I would use would be to um, to rebuild re- relationships between the sexes on the basis of a, a deeper equality. Uh, it seems to me that that would be the only a way to start uh, rethinking the, the rules of engagement and disengagement also between sexes. Thank you very much.
1: Ava, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on the show today and for your thought-provoking book, The End of Love, A Sociology of Negative Relations.
0: Thank you so much, Renee, for your very challenging and very thoughtful uh, questions. It was a pleasure to be here. And
1: thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.